If you're visiting with us, we work our way through books of the Bible. Typically here is is kind of our staple diet. And so we're currently working our way. We're taking a break from the Gospel of John. And we are in one of the minor prophets. uh, A minor prophet with a major message by the name of Habakkuk. And uh, so if you have your copy of Scripture, it would be helpful if you turn there uh, to Habakkuk chapter 1. Um, Pastor Dale read it earlier. We're going to read it again, uh, verses 5 through 17. Habakkuk chapter 1. I know it takes a while to find Habakkuk, so I'll give you a little couple extra seconds there. Not too long, but I never was good at sword drills growing up. I mean, I was always the last one. Habakkuk chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to swoop down and devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect their captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Then Habakkuk responds to what God says in verses 5-11. through 11. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Yahweh, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you do not you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up more righteous those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because... Through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? This is God's holy word. Let's ask Him for help. Lord God Almighty, we come before You and ask that You would help us. Give us understanding into Your word. Give us a heart of faith to respond with belief. Help us to see the wonder of Your grace. Help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly. 
Give us eyes to see, taste buds to taste, ears to hear, hands to touch. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, there was a car accident in Fresno, California. The cause of this accident was tremendously thick fog. And as you might imagine, driving in the fog, one car hit another car, hit another car, and before long, this was a 99-car pileup. There was two fatalities. 36 people were injured in this 99-car pileup. What do traffic manuals tell you when you are driving in the fog? You probably know whether you listen to them or not. But you need to what? Slow down. You need to slow down so much that if something were to appear out of that fog, you would have enough time to stop before you hit it. Slow down in the fog. It's actually pretty good counsel for us when we are in the midst of the fog of the trials and difficulties of life. When sometimes we're going through a trial and a difficulty and, and, and we know God's righteousness, but we're encountering such injustice and unrighteousness and such awful suffering that we're beginning to have even doubts about God, it's good to slow down in the fog. And slow down and to latch on to and to trust who God is. What we know to be true about God when there's not as much fog. This is what Habakkuk's helping us to understand because he was in the midst of fog. He was in the midst of a situation as, he, as we lay out, laid out last week in verses 1 through 4 where he sees all the wickedness of God's people in Israel. And his heart is heavy as he sees all this wickedness. And he's, he's basically crying out to God saying, God, aren't you going to do something about this? We, we, we saw this in verse 2 where he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear, I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me, strife exists and contention. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. So he sees all the wickedness amidst the people of God. And he knows the character of God and he's crying out in lament and basically saying, God, aren't you going to do something? Well, Habakkuk's a prophet and God actually answers Habakkuk directly. Now, sometimes we would like for God to answer us directly, to tell us why he's doing what he's doing, what he's doing, but we often don't get that privilege. But Habakkuk got that privilege and and, and many different people in the Bible get that privilege. And these are windows, I think, for us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of injustices that we see in this world and in the church as well, for us to latch on to who God is and to trust God. So let's begin to listen to God's answer to Habakkuk. His answer to his lament. Pick it up in verse 5. God says, look, look among the nations, 
Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days, you would not believe it if you were told. He tells Habakkuk he is doing something. He is up to something. And, and this, this, this again brings up a very important point that there are often hidden purposes of what God is doing in our midst that we don't know about. Habakkuk did not know about what God was doing until God told him. We often are in the fog and don't know what God is doing. So here in this situation, God tells Habakkuk, He says, look among the nations. Be astonished. Be shocked by this. I'm I'm doing something. You're not going to believe this. I'm up to something. Basically, God's telling Habakkuk, I am actually answering your prayer. He said, you know, his prayer was, how long? You know, God, when are you going to do something? He was already doing something. The wheels of God's action were already turning. They were already in motion. And then God's going to now tell Habakkuk how he's answering this prayer. Verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, you may read that and think, well, okay, I know about the Canadians. I know about the Mexicans. The Chaldeans, who, who are these folks? Well, the Chaldeans are also known as the Babylonians. Um, this is a period in the history of God's people when God was going to use the Babylonians. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? and his leadership to come down and swoop up the Israelites, especially from the southern tribe, and to take many captive. And there would be three waves in which Nebuchadnezzar and and the Chaldeans would come and wreak havoc, and, and they would actually destroy the temple of God, that Solomonic temple, and bring it to ruin. And so... God tells the prophet Habakkuk, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And he begins to describe them, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. The Assyrians at this point, they were the ones who were kind of the big bullies on the block. Okay? But a kind of tag team group of the Medes the Persians and the Babylonians recently tackled the Assyrians, and so the Assyrians were no longer the big bully on the block. And now the Babylonians were the rising empire. This is all, by the way, prophesied in the book of Nahum. One commentator says of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that Babylon was a nation known for its violent impulses. Its people readily committed atrocities without foresight, without forethought or remorse. The historical record presents the Babylonians as a fierce and pitilessly cruel people. Babylon indeed did conquer many nations. Assyria... Judah, as is prophesied here, Egypt, Edom. And Judah was just a speck of dust 
before the gigantic vacuum cleaner of Babylon came sweeping all these other nations up. Now, why should Habakkuk be amazed? Why should he be shocked? Which, which by the way, let me uh, let you know when it says in verse 6, For behold, God here uses the second person plural so it's not just you behold, it's y'all behold. Okay, now, now that's important because we need to understand that God's answer to Habakkuk is not merely to Habakkuk, but through Habakkuk to all of God's people, namely the nation of Israel. Y'all behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, now this is important and would have been shocking and amazing because this was not the popular theology of the day. This was not what you were going to go into the Christian bookstore and read uh, that we need to be cautious about the Babylonians coming, God's judgment coming because we've been rebelling against God. You know, God's judgment is never a popular message, okay? In fact, we get a hint of that from the book of Jeremiah who was a contemporary, he was a prophet the same time as Habakkuk. In Jeremiah 6.4, this was the message that the dominant theology of the day, all the prophets were giving. It says, Jeremiah says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So the false prophets were saying, oh, don't worry about those Babylonians. We are God's people. God's going to protect us. Look at us. And they said this, no doubt, with a big smile on their face. Don't worry about God's judgment. God is all love. You don't need to worry about that. I mean, we have the temple. We have the temple of the Lord. Certainly God's not going to allow His house to get destroyed. And that was the message of the prophets of His day. Which, by the way, it's interesting... In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are preaching to Jews of their day, they quote this passage from Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5. Look, behold, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. In other words, Paul and Barnabas use this passage to aim their guns at their contemporary Jews during their day to say, guess what? Wake up. You might be shocked by this, but God has His guns of justice aimed at you. He's going to judge you. And this is a message for us as well. That we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's righteous wrath and indignation. We deserve to be objects of God's punishment. But the wonder and good news that we find some hundreds of years later is that this Jesus is born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those under the law. That even though we are guilty of breaking God's law, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law and died on the cross so that we can be forgiven. But just as in Habakkuk's day, they were shocked by God's coming justice. Paul Barnabas' day, shocked by God's justice. Sometimes today, we're shocked by God's justice. In fact, we should stop singing Amazing Grace. We should start singing Amazing Justice. Because that's really what we're amazed by. We get used to God's grace. 
But notice this further description in verse 7. They, speaking of these Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. What, what an amazing statement. They're dreaded and feared. Now, now uh, keep in mind, that this is a day and age without anti-missile systems, right? You know, uh, you know, we, you know, we have uh, our, our military equipment today is pretty impressive where we can have these, you know, iron shields, these invisible shields, and, and we kind of live in something of a bubble. But imagine living with the regular threat of a, an, an imposing empire just coming in and kidnapping your family pillaging everything, destroying everything. This was a regular threat, especially for this particular real estate in ancient Israel because it was, it was a connection between Asia and Africa. And so these big bully nations would kind of be traveling with their troops and say, me want to take you. Mm. And they would just come and destroy everything. And, and so they live with regular fear of these intimidating, bully nations. And, and so now, the Babylonians, they're the feared bully on the block. And notice this, their justice and authority originate from themselves. They, they are their own authority. They have no restraints. They're not yielding to the covenant God of Israel saying, well, you know, what's the righteous thing to do? No, they do whatever they want. They have their own standard of justice. They have their own self-appointed authority. They have no accountability. Notice also verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Habakkuk, like many of the prophets of old, notice the imagery here. This is, this is poetry. The, notice the metaphors and the similes that he's dropping down. He, he speaks of them as like leopards. You think of a leopard being so fast, but he says this is how their horses are. Not only that, they're and keener than wolves in the evening. What's a wolf in the evening doing? Well... It's dinner time. And so the wolf is hiding in wait, cleverly looking for his dinner, ready for him to pounce on the next victim of an animal. Well, this is how the Babylonians are. Hmm, who should we take over next? Hmm. But not only that, they're likened to an eagle, like a flying eagle that swoops down to devour. Have you ever seen those like geographic videos where you know the bird just comes and you know there's this little animal and you're like, whoa, right? It's shocking, right? You know the the precision, the, the the way in which this bird can just come down, grab its prey, its claws just clamp down, and that animal's gone, snatched away from its mother. But this is what they were doing with human beings, not animals. Imagine being a parent in that day, not knowing what might happen to your children. 
not knowing what might happen to your family members, to your wife. Verse 9. Notice their success. They're, they're effective at this. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. You know, you think about sand on the beach. Anybody can take it, right? Children collect it with such ease to, to build their little sand castles, to, you know, to, to make their little you know, uh, rivers or, or whatever, or to bury somebody. Sand, it's just, it's just there for the taking, right? You know, you start collecting sand, there's no you know, security guard who comes along, hey, what are you doing with that sand? No, just easy, easy. None of that, they're cocky. They're cocky. Verse 10, they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. In other words, they, they look at the opposing opposition and say, <laughs> you're going to try to fight us? You're a joke. Often boxers, before they get into the ring, will mock and taunt one another. But, but usually those are just words. Usually it's a fairly evenly matched boxing match. But, but in reality, the Babylonians, they, just, they walked over their opponents. They were, they were undefeated at this point. Nobody was putting up a good fight. And they just laughed at it. In fact, the, the way in which they would mock their opposition and do horrible, terroristic kinds of things to invoke fear in people is demonstrated in in one of their invasions of Judah that would be fulfilled by this prophecy when Zedekiah was the puppet king at that point and they murdered his sons before his very eyes and then they plucked out his eyes so that that was the last thing he ever saw. I mean, that, that was the kinds of stuff they did. And they heap up rubble to capture. They were skilled at building ramps so that they could just go up over walls with such tremendous ease. But they're not giving glory to God for their military success, verse 11. They are pagans. Verse 11, they sweep through like the wind and pass on. But then notice, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. They worship their own military might. They were their own authority. They worship their own Strength. They weren't giving honor and glory to the true and living God, but they were living in defiance. In fact, there's another window seen in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel, uh, remember Nebuchadnezzar? He, he, uh, he builds this 90 foot high statue in honor of Marduk? No, right? It, it was a statue of moi. Of himself, right? 
and he mandated everybody to bow down and worship to the statue of himself. I mean, the arrogance, right? The audacity. And so, again, place yourself in the sandals of the prophet, okay? His initial cry in verses 5, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 2 through 4, is God, I'm looking at your people and all the wickedness and all the evil they're doing, and my heart cries out, God, aren't you going to do something? How long are you going to let your people, your covenant people, go on in such rebellion and disobedience? God's answer? Doing something. I'm raising up this wicked people. And they're going to be like the hammer in my hand and I'm going to come smashing down upon my people. <laughs> so you can imagine Habakkuk's response. Wait, 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 wait a second here. Wait, 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 wait. Say what? You're, you're going to bring these guys? And so notice Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Oh... Lord, all capitals, that's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Oh, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. We, we will not die. You, O oh Lord, have appointed them, them. You can almost hear the tone of His voice. You've appointed them to judge. And you, O oh Rock, have established them, them, those guys. I mean, they're, they're really bad. I mean, I know we're bad, but we're not that bad. But also, I want you to notice in Habakkuk's response, he, he starts in the right place. He starts with the character of God. He's calling God the Holy One. He's speaking of God as the Everlasting One. He, he knows who God is. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to behold, to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So again, he, he sees the righteousness of God. And, and notice this, this is what, what is sometimes called a kind of anthropomorphism the speaking of God in human language God you can't look on evil now obviously God does look on evil he sees everything but but the idea here is God you know when you see evil you are repulsed by it it's vile but now you're using this vile people to punish your people And Habakkuk here boldly asks the question at the end of verse 13, why are you silent? Or, or I'm sorry, in the question before, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why, why are you letting the bad guys win? I mean, we're bad, but they're the badder bad guys. Why are you letting those bad guys win? Habakkuk here thinks that God's answer to his prayer is like trying to cure a headache by decapitation. I mean, the solution is worse than the problem. 
God, what, what are you doing? Verse 14, why, why have you made them like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? Habakkuk's saying that, that these men, are they're like fish and, and there's no one to protect them. Verse 15, the, the Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, so we're just like fish just waiting to be caught, nobody to protect us, and, and they're just going to drag them away in their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and be glad. They're, they're, they're going to make sport of us. Verse 16, Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. They're going to beat us up and they're going to then bow down to their own military might and worship it. God, do do you really want that? Verse 17. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? God, are you, are, you, are you really going to let them do this to us? Again, as I mentioned, Habakkuk is in the fog here. He, he, he's in the fog. He, he can't quite understand why God would do it this way. He, he doesn't like that God is doing it this way. Perhaps some of you are going through some situations where you've cried out to God and in a sense God has answered, but you don't really like the answer. Maybe the answer is no. Maybe the answer is wait. But it's not the way you would have planned it. We live in a world filled with all kinds of injustices and wickedness in this fallen world where where wicked people do awful things. And it can cause us to get the kind of spiritual wind knocked out of us and begin to have doubts. And Habakkuk is written so that we would deal with those doubts and grow in our trust. And so let's, let's try to take some pointers here. Some, take some of the good, but also maybe some subtle corrections in Habakkuk's response here. Let me give you three important truths for you to grow in your trust in God. First, the trust in God's unchanging faithfulness. So this is, we want you to grow in your faith in the midst of the fog of the trials. And this is how you can do it. You need to trust in the unchanging faithfulness of God. And, and, and Habakkuk does seem to lay hold of God's faithfulness in some way here. And, and this is important. This is an important principle. When, when you don't understand things, you, you, you need to press into the character of God.
One pastor says, Do not abandon what you know to be true in the light when you are engulfed by the darkness. Do not abandon what you know to be true in the light when you are engulfed by the darkness. Habakkuk's in the darkness right now. We know about darkness. We live in northeastern Ohio. Many overcast days. But on one of those overcast days, you don't say, oh my goodness, where did the sun go? We're all going to freeze to death. What are we going to do? There's no sun. It's disappeared. You, you don't respond that way, right? Say, okay, I can't see the sun. I haven't seen it since February. But I'm pretty sure it's still there. I, I, I know it's true. I know the sun's still there. Even in the darkness, you lay hold of that which you know. And here, Habakkuk lays hold of God's faithfulness. Notice what he says here in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Notice he speaks of God as the everlasting one. Uh, this could be translated, translated the God who is from ancient time or from days of old. And often this description of God as the everlasting God or the God who is from days of old is a, is a phrase that's often connected to God's faithfulness, to His ancient promises that He has established with the patriarchs. Uh, listen to Psalm 44 verse 1. Oh God... We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us of the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. Psalm 77 verse 5, I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. So the, this description of God as the everlasting God, this is the God who has made ancient promises, eternal promises with His people. Not only that, notice how He addresses God, what name of God He uses. I've mentioned it several times, both in the Scripture reading and in the exposition. He calls Him Yahweh. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the covenant name of God that God reveals Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter, chapter 3. This is Yahweh God. This is very distinctive. El Elohim was, a, it was a, a, just kind of a general name for God, just like God today in our culture. But once you mention the name Jesus, now we're getting very specific. Well, same way in the Old Testament culture, the surrounding nations, if, if you spoke of the God Marduk, it was El Marduk or Elohim Marduk. But here, when you speak of Yahweh God, only the God of Israel was called Yahweh God. And so Habakkuk here addresses you, O Yahweh. You are the God who has made promise to your people. And indeed, He had made promise. He had made promise even for times like this when Israel was not behaving very good. When they were not being faithful to their covenant God. Listen to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 44 and 45. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies. So God, God gives this, God gives these, um, 
both blessings and cursings to Israel. So, so he's, go, he's going to bring them into the land. They're not in the land quite yet. And, and this land is kind of like uh, Eden 2.0. Okay, This is Eden 2.0. God's like, we're going to see how we, you're going to do. We saw how Adam and Eve did. Now you are my firstborn. We're going to see how you do. If you disobey me, I'm going to puke you out of the land. I'm going to vomit you out of the land. And th- this is how it's going to go down. And so he tells them this, in spite of this, you're going to be in the land of your enemies. I'm going to kick you out of this land, just like I kicked Adam out of Eden. And then he says in verse 44, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am Yahweh their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. So this is what God says. I'm going to kick you out of the land, but you know what? You may not be faithful to me, but I'm not going to forget you. I am still going to be faithful to you even though you are not faithful to me. I will not break my end of the promise even though you break your end of the promise. And so this, again, this is what what Habakkuk is holding on to. You, O everlasting one, you are Yahweh, you are the covenant God. And then notice also what he says. He says, we will not die. We will not die. This is in the middle of verse 12. Now, what does he mean by this? Because... Obviously, a lot of people did die, right? Uh, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, people did die. But, but the idea is, you're not going to extinguish us. We're not going to be taken captive and to go into oblivion never to exist anymore. You will preserve your people. And indeed, God did. I mean, it, I mean even today, the fact that there is a Jewish nation today is a wonder. And I think something of an evidence of God's faithfulness to His covenant people, even though now they're not living in obedience to Him. They're not bowing their knee to the Messiah that He sent them. And in general, obviously there are Jewish people who have embraced Jesus as Messiah and are genuine believers. But what I want us to lay hold of... Oh, and then not only that, notice this kind of metaphor he uses of God. What does he call God at the end of verse 12? And you, O rock, have established them to correct. He calls God a rock. What is a rock? Well, a rock is stable, right? A rock is unchanging. A rock is immovable. Well, so the the description of a rock here is highlighting God's stability, God's immutability, that God is the unchanging God. That God does not change. And because God doesn't change, His characteristics don't change. His promises don't change. His plans don't change. This is what Habakkuk is laying hold of. He's laying hold of God in His faithfulness as the unchanging God. He doesn't understand it. But he's holding on, God, you're the rock. You're the everlasting one. You are the covenant God. 
Friend, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're going to go through a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now. But you may find yourself in a fog. In a very disappointing situation. The death of a spouse, the death of a child, the diagnosis of cancer, a wayward child, perhaps persecution, I don't know. In the midst of that, you'll look at the character of God and His righteousness and you'll see all the unrighteousness around you and you begin to have doubts. That's part of the Christian experience. It's part of the experience of the people of God. And you may, like Habakkuk, cry out, How long, O God? In that situation, I want you to hold on to the reality God is faithful. He's faithful to every single promise He's made. Now this gets tricky because sometimes people think He's made promises. He hasn't promised. He hasn't promised to fix every problem of yours. At least not now. He will in the world to come. He'll fix all of them. But He has given tremendous promises. Uh, For instance, even this promise to Israel, we will not die, that He will not abandon His people. God has given a promise to His new covenant people. John uh, John chapter 3 and verse 36, whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. God promises if you believe in the Son, if you believe in Jesus, you have life, eternal life, forever life. He'll be faithful. He's not going to renege on that promise. It's not one of those rebate scams that you need to fill out 20 different forms and hope to wait to hear back that you've got the rebate. No. No, it's, it's good. It's fiduciary. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. It's guaranteed. Also, He'll be faithful as His promise. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Wonder of wonders. God arsenals and designs trials for each of His children. He knows what each of them need to become more like... That's what He says. He works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. And His purpose is laid out in verse 29, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. God designs trials and difficulties and all kinds of stuff that we don't understand for the good of each of His children. And friends, He is a good Father. You can trust Him even if you don't understand it, even if you can't comprehend it. Sometimes I will take one of my children, put them in the car seat, drive down the road, 
take them to a place, have some person come out and stab them with a needle. (laughs) And they cry, and they don't like it, and they scream, and maybe get a sticker when it's all done. And they look at me, sometimes with doubt, why on earth would you take me here? Why would you cause me to have such pain and suffering? And yet, little do they know, I try to explain it to them, this is for their good. It may hurt, but I'm doing this because I love them. Same is also with God. This God who cannot lie, He'll be faithful to all of His promises. You know, at least three times in the Bible it mentions that God cannot lie. That's why I like that trick catechism question. Can God do anything? No. God cannot lie or die, but He can do all His holy will. God doesn't lie. It's not part of His character. There's a story that Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian Baptist preacher, tells of a woman who believed in the security of salvation and she would often get in discussions with another Wesleyan who did not believe in the security of salvation. And the man asked this woman, what would be so bad if a person could lose their salvation? She wisely responded, well, of course it'd be bad for the person. They'd be in hell. But more importantly, she said, it would be bad for God. It would be bad for God because He'd lose His honor and integrity. Because He'd be breaking His promise. Friend, no matter what situation you're going through, it may be horribly difficult, it may be challenging, you may be in the darkness, you may be in the fog and wondering what on earth good could God possibly be doing in this. I want to tell you, you can trust this faithful God. You can lay a hold of Him. If He sent Jesus to die for you, don't you think He'll do whatever else is necessary to bring you to eternal glory. That's Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? But not only trust in the faithful God, trust in the righteous God. Habakkuk 1.13 Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look on favor with those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk also holds on to this other reality that God, His eyes are pure. He hates evil. He doesn't look upon evil and wickedness with favor. That God is a righteous God. And this is what kind of makes it difficult for him though, right? Because you're righteous, but, but the Babylonians, they're really, really bad. Habakkuk needs to also understand that 
not only is God righteous in His character, but God is so amazing that He works evil for His righteous purposes. That's kind of some of the missing ingredient that Habakkuk doesn't get. He only sees the wickedness of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, but doesn't consider that God may have some righteous good purpose behind that that He's accomplishing. There's sometimes a tendency to doubt this truth in the Christian life. Especially amongst us Reformed folks. You know, sometimes uh, you're going through a trial and somebody asks you, how are you doing? God's sovereign. And that's right. But on the inside, you're thinking, God's sovereign. He's in control. But I don't like it. It smells bad to me. You need to also believe and understand that even though whatever evil you may be encountering, there is a good and righteous God who lies behind in His purposes in that evil. It doesn't mean that those who are the agents of the evil uh, are, are uh, you know, somehow doing good. But wonder of wonders, God is able to exercise His sovereign hand over evil while, while not having a hand in evil. I don't understand how it all works out. But He does it. We must preach to ourselves and remind ourselves that God is up to something good and righteous here, even if I can't quite see it. And to trust Him for it. But not only to trust in the faithfulness of God, to trust in the righteousness of God, but thirdly, to trust in the wisdom of God. Again, Habakkuk, he... He does seem to affirm the faithfulness of God and there's some aspect of the righteousness of God that he affirms in seeing God's hatred of evil. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Uh, But there seems to be a lack of trust in the wisdom of God. That God would use this wicked people to chastise his own people. I mean, I mean, that's what he's questioning here, right? That why, and, and he's not only questioning it, he, he's interpreting God's using the Chaldeans as looking, he says, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you smiling upon them? But God was not smiling upon them. In fact, he says, even at the end of this, they will have their day in court. They are guilty. I will deal with them. Don't you worry about that. They're on my list. And it's a naughty list. And they're going to get theirs. But right now, I will use them as a battering ram against my covenant people for thumbing their nose up at me. And so this was God's plan. 
This was what God in His infinite wisdom had designed. And Habakkuk was not trusting in God's wisdom. Wayne Grudem defines God's wisdom as God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to accomplish those goals. God always has the best goals and the best means to accomplish those goals. Sometimes we just need to hold our hands over our mouth and say, God, You know better. Father knows best. I don't understand it. But I know that You know better than me. Habakkuk should have slowed down. He was in the fog. And he begins to, in some ways, accuse God of wrongdoing because he wasn't trusting that God knew what he was up to. And sometimes we can do that in the midst of our trials. In the midst of our complaining. And I, and I get it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult concept for us to grasp. I mean, how is it that God uses and works evil for His purposes? But He does. He's so smart. He can do that. It's Thomas Watson used the, the illustration of a clock to help people to understand it. To, to understand how on the one side of the clock, the hands all go in one direction, right? They keep going round and round. Actually, if you're fit, this way. But if you were to open the back of that clock, you know, this is not digital clocks, you know, this, I don't know what the back of those look like, but these are the older kinds of clocks with the gears. You would see all kinds of gears running different directions, and many of them running the opposite direction that the hands are going. And it's something of a picture that the, the hands on the face of the clock that all go one direction, that's God's good, eternal purposes that keep marching on. But then there's gears behind, some of which that go contrary to God's character. But even though they're moving contrary to God's character, they are actually being used to make the hands on the front go exactly the right direction. So that God permits that which He hates to accomplish that which He loves. He permits that which He hates. The evil in this world, the wickedness, the injustices, the violence. He permits it to accomplish that which He loves, namely the glory of His name and the good of His people. Friends, we need to grow in our trust of that reality. Perhaps you remember the story of the Dutch woman, Corrie Ten Boom. She lived during World War II, during Nazi occupation. Nazi soldiers were roaming the streets, rounding up Jews and others who defied the opposition. And you remember her father who was a watch fixer, clockmaker himself. 
He had this kind of little underground thing going on where they were smuggling Jews out of the country and often these Jews would would be inside of uh, hiding places inside of their house. Well, eventually Corey and her older sister Betsy were arrested. They were sent to various concentration camps. Some of them more harsh than others. And you remember that one occasion where Betsy, who was Corey's spiritual leader, they're doing devotions that morning and they come across 1 Thessalonians 5, be joyful always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Well, that was the devotion for that morning. And this particular concentration camp, they were somewhat puzzled over because they had a greater measure of freedom in this camp. They were able to lead Bible studies with the other women. The guards didn't come in and do awful, horrendous things to the girls. But there was fleas in the barracks. And these fleas were just an awful infestation. Constantly just nibbling at them. Devotion this morning... Be joyful always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Betsy says to Corey, Corey, we're going to thank God for the fleas this morning. Corey looks at Betsy thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not going to thank God for these nasty fleas that keep nibbling at me. Corey Reluctantly, God, I, I, I thank you for the fleas this morning. Well, some time goes by and Corey later hears two guards arguing with one another outside the barracks, neither of them wanting to go inside the barracks because they don't want to be around the fleas. God was using those tiny little insects protect all the girls in those barracks, to allow His Word to run freely throughout the barracks. That's what God was up to. In that moment, Corey didn't know. Betsy didn't even know. And often we don't know, and sometimes we never know. And we may never know in this life what God is up to in the midst of the trials and the suffering. In fact, I'm confident that all eternity will be something of a vindication of God's people's trust in Him in the midst of their trials. As the world looks mockingly, how could you thank God for fleas? You're a fool! But God reveals, look what I was up to. You see what I was doing with those fleas? The Scripture says, whoever trusts in Him will never be disappointed, will never be put to shame. You'll never trust God and think, boy, I really wish I didn't trust Him. No, eternity will be an eternal vindication that God always was wise and knew what was best. It's illustrated well in the early American poet Phyllis Wheatley. She was... uh, African-American slave. She was kidnapped from her family at age seven. Brought to America, purchased by a couple 
in Massachusetts who had recently lost their daughter. And this couple treated Phyllis Wheatley like a daughter. They taught her, educated her. She became a poet. Shocked early colonial America that an African woman could write like that. She was even put under trial because they didn't believe that she could write like that. One of her poems, speaking of her own slavery, she writes this, "'Twas mercy that brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember Christians, Negroes black as cane, may be refined and joined the angelic train. How did she interpret the wisdom of God with her being ripped from her family at age seven. She said this was a mercy because God used it for me to hear the gospel. Does that mean she condoned kidnapping? No. Does that mean she condoned the slave trade? No. She would write letters to George Washington and others condemning it. But she was able to trust God and His wisdom Fast forward, let me take you to another foggy situation as we close. Take you to Jerusalem around 30 AD. Imagine you're one of the disciples who has left their fishing business to follow this Jesus for the past three and a half years. And now Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth hanging on a Roman cross. I think if I was there, I think if you were there, you would be tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God. How could God be faithful? Jesus was perfectly righteous. He never did any wrong. He only loved people. He only did good. He healed lepers. He healed the outcasts. And look, there He is being publicly crucified and mocked. And yet if you trusted God, eventually you would come to know that this was not God denying His faithfulness, but this was a plan that was set in motion from eternity past that had been promised by the prophets and the patriarchs and was being fulfilled and executed to a T was indeed a very demonstration of the faithfulness of God. You'd also be tempted to doubt the righteousness of God. This Jesus, this righteous man, these wicked, hypocritical religious leaders handing Him over, lying about the things He said, lying about the things He did to the Romans, these pagans. Oh God, how could You be righteous and let this man be crucified? And yet it was a righteous plan being set in order. The pinnacle, the demonstration of the justice of God was Jesus absorbing the full fury of God's justice upon that cross. You'd be tempted to doubt the wisdom of God. How could this be good? 
How could this be the best means to accomplish the best goal? And yet, in the cross, it solved the problem of God's justice and grace. The wisdom of God was on display. So friend, in the fog of trial, I summon you to trust this great God. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. For the great God that You are. Oh Lord, we thank You that Your cross work covers up our doubts and our unbelief. But Lord, also as we look at the cross, may it motivate us and drive us to greater trust and confidence in You. That we would not merely survive our trials, but that we would thrive in the midst of them. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to close by singing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me.